So good evening, everyone. I just came back from Peru, uh, so buenos noches. So we would, for some reason, I like saying that. I, I kept saying it all the time. <laughs> so here we are on retreat. You know, we all on retreat together. Even the teachers, we go through our own retreat here. This is a collective experience. No one's left out of this process. Mm. You know, being on retreat can have so many challenges. It was really beautiful to meet with people today and, and just have a chance to connect one-on-one and just uh, talk with people individually. And it's like, yeah, the retreat, it's cooking. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and there can be so many challenges when we go on retreat because we sort of, we go into the underworld of the mind. You know, all the parts that we're not conscious of sort of go down into the depths, you know. And we look around down there. We, may, we might not have been down there for a long, long time. And it takes some real courage. You know, we sort of have to be willing to go, to go into the dark a bit it reminds me of one of my favorite poems by Wendell Berry. It's called To Go Into the Dark. He writes, To go into the dark with the light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So there's a way on um, retreats and also in our own lives that we have to be willing to go into the shadows. You know, uh, Bonte this morning was talking about we have to go down into the roots of things, looking, you know, pull the root out. I use that analogy a lot because I like it. I can really, I, I see that in myself, right? But to go down into the roots is meaning like we have to go down deep, right? If you look at, if you want to pull a root out, it's some effort, right? You can't just, you know, you can snip like Bonte was saying on the, you know, the weed, trim it and it grow back. But if you want to pull the root out, you really have to put some effort in and you have to go all the way down into it, you know, and make sure you, you really pull. And in some way that's kind of going into the, to the underworld, to the dark parts of our mind where these roots are really lodged deep, right? We have to be willing to go down and then look at the root. Somehow our practice is we examine the roots of suffering, but we have to be willing to examine it, be willing to get very close, up close and personal with what's causing our illness, what's causing our suffering. Um... Right now I'm in the process of writing a book about the Buddha and I'm using the archetype of the Buddha as a great shaman, like a a great healer, using it as sort of a a way to talk about the teachings. And he gave out hundreds of teachings, you know, teachings on generosity and and ethics. And he gave out all kinds of teachings on all the, the realms of concentration, you know, teachings on love and kindness all kinds of visualizations and mantras and all kinds of different teachings, each to different people depending on 
their personality type, what they could understand. The suttas are full of funny stories of meditations that Buddha would give people, you know, depending on their... He could see into their mind with his great omniscient power what they would respond to, right? So then he could give a certain instruction and that would often do the trick, you know? And all those stories, that it would always be a happy ending of Nibbana. <laughs> the person attained Nibbana. <laughs> we like those stories. But the Dharma really is medicine. And I like to talk about it like that. And one of my favorite passages is in the Anguttara Nikaya, in Pali Canon, where the Buddha talks about this as Dharma as medicine. He writes, just as a, or thus we hear, he writes, this is just as a capable physician might instantly cure a patient who is in pain and seriously ill. So also, dear sir, whatever one hears of the Buddha Dharma, be it in discourses, mixed prose, explanations, or marvelous statements, one's sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair will vanish. Just as if there were a beautiful pond with a pleasant shore, its water being clear, agreeable, cool, and transparent, and a man came by, scorched and exhausted by heat, fatigued, parched, and thirsty, and he would step into this pond and bathe and drink, and thus all of his plight fatigue, and feverishness are allayed. So also, dear sir, whenever one hears the Buddha's Dharma, be it discourses, mixed prose, explanations, or marvelous statements, all one's plight, fatigue, and feverish burning of the heart are allayed. So this writing is a little (laughs) old-fashioned, but you can just imagine, it reminds me, I was reflecting today on my first retreat I did 17 years ago. I can't believe so much time has passed, actually. Uh, But I remember I was, it was before this hall was built. It was right before this hall was built, and Spirit Rock used to uh, rent out different facilities for retreats. They used to do that a lot. And um, Yucca Valley, down in the desert, Joshua Tree, they were holding a, a big retreat. It was a 10-day retreat for beginners. And at the time, I was living in East Oakland, and I was having a terrible time in my life. It was just bad. I, was, uh, I just got fired from this terrible job selling timeshare. So I was really glad <laughs> trying to talk people into buying timeshare in Palm Springs was not only exhausting, but just ridiculous. And... Um, I had this boyfriend at the time, and we did not get along, and we argued for hours. It was just, it was miserable. Even I remember our dog was unhappy, and um, I I was getting really depressed. I just was really in a bad state. I just was really unhappy, very deeply unhappy, and so I remember I had been trying for a year to teach myself meditation was not working. I would just sit there and think about my problems. I was actually getting worse, I think. But I was trying to train myself through books. and you know. So somebody had told me, hey, there's this retreat you can go to where it's silent, 
which I was really happy about. I was like, I've got to be quiet. Something is wrong. I've got thinking issues, problems. Remember, that was good. And then I heard they give you instruction on meditation. And um, because I'd got fired or laid off or whatever, I got unemployment. I remember putting my unemployment checks together to pay for the retreat. And, uh, and uh, as I was getting ready to go to the retreat, my partner and I, we had a big breakup, so I had nowhere to go at the end of the retreat. I packed my car. So I drove from East Oakland all the way down to Yucca Valley. It was about a 12-hour drive. And I remember I was crying the whole way. I, my car was full of tissues. And I was drinking Mountain Dew, Diet Mountain Dew. And I was smoking. I used to smoke because I was on, you know, I was just so wacky. So I was smoking and drinking Mountain Dew and crying for 10. I don't even know how I didn't get an accident. I really don't. It was the gods were because I was all over the place, you know. But I was like, I just got to get to this place. I got to get to this place. And I remember I finally pulled up and I was so exhausted. You can imagine, right? I was so tired, and I remember I went to go check in, and it was the line, and I didn't know anything. I didn't even know it was Buddhist retreat. All I know is you meditate, it's silent, and they gave you instruction. It was 10 days, and I didn't, at that point, have anywhere to live, so that seemed fine. And uh, I was just happy, but I can remember as we pulled up, as I got into the line, there was this German man there who's the Qigong teacher. His name was Franz. And he looked at he looked at my application and was like, no retreat, no, no, you know, nothing, nothing. And he goes like, beginner's mind. And he smiled. And literally, I almost fainted on the registration. I was just so, I mean, just mentally, I was just dead. You know, I felt like really bad. But over the course of those 10 days, it was like the Dharma was bringing me back to life. It was like every night I think I can't make it through another day. I'd be walking in the desert crying and angry and you know how we what we do, go through so many thoughts and emotions and and then I think I can't do it and then I would get to the Dharma talk and then I'd be so happy after the Dharma talk. Yes, I could do it. And every day was like that. It was like dead up until about seven thirty and then the talk I'd be like hanging on for dear life or some nugget of truth. Usually it was you can do it. You can be with it. Mostly we say the same thing again and again. <laughs> it's really the same set of teachings, but it's so funny how it sounds new again. It's like, oh yeah, the Four Noble Truths. I didn't even think of that, but we hear that talk. <laughs> we hear that talk all the time, right? But it just goes to show you how much we need to hear the truth, right? It's always like, we forget so that the course of that 10 days, it really changed my life. After that, I was so dedicated to the Dharma. It was as if everything fell away. And for years, I just picked up that, the path, going to many retreats, months and months of practice. And so much healing I had to do from my traumas growing up. It was very difficult. Some of you know, it was very difficult, all kinds of issues. And our fa- my family life was really uh, a mess. And that had a huge impact on me as a being, you know. I just, I had so much to learn and so much to let go of, right? I had so much to learn and so much junk that had accumulated, you know. And part of that also came from growing up in East Long Beach. I grew up on the East Long Beach Compton border. 
People don't think that when they look at me. Think, oh, you probably had a nice hippie life somewhere, you know, spring, you know. It was really the opposite of that. Uh, and so many of us grow up with a lot of different uh, difficulties. I'm not the only one at all. Uh, and we, we have to work to heal that. You know, we're here to heal that. The Dharma is medicine. Uh, and to take it, what we are doing here, I always say that meditation centers are hospitals. I always see them as cosmic hospitals. And we're all in here getting well together. And the teachers, we're sort of just like the nurses, right? Each person has a little prescription. You a little more walking. Yeah, you maybe less. Metta for you, double metta for you. Um, right? And we do all these different things, helping and to help your mind stay balanced so that the medicine of the truth can go in more deeply. That's, that's how when I look at someone, I said, how is it that we can keep them in the present moment enough for them to start to see the truth, to start to pull the roots out that Bonte talked about? Right? That's my job. That's our job on, on some level. And then, of course, to remind you of the Dharma, to talk about the Dharma, to share the Dharma, to, to remind you to keep going. Right? Everybody's doing really well here. Everybody is doing really well. And I'm, I'm proud of anyone who can come on these retreats and sit with yourself and sit with the mind and all its delusion. And then we sit with our lives that we've created, right? Sometimes we sit here and we have a big mess at home. We think, oh God, how am I going to resolve this, right? But in the silence over time and in the practice, we'll start to know what to do, right? We let wisdom lead the way. So I want to talk more about this wisdom aspect because it's wisdom that really does in the end uproot the big ones you know what do I mean by the big ones (laughs) you could say the big pieces of suffering that make us the most sick you know the most sick so you could say greed the endless mind that's wanting all the time wanting 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 (laughs) And then there's hatred. That's another big one, right? We start to uproot that. And then delusion, the mind that just doesn't know, right? Can't figure out what's happening, can't see clearly. And then on and on, there's many manifestations of that. So when I talk about wisdom tonight, I want to talk about aspects of insight, what we mean when we say insight. So we are practicing insight meditation here. And so if you think about what is insight, insight in some way, it doesn't come through thinking. I used to think about the Dharma a lot, and I would think I was really getting somewhere. And you do get somewhere. (laughs) When I'd be at retreats, all I would do is think about the teachings a lot. And then one of my teachers looked at me and he said, you know, you can't think yourself to wisdom here. You have to actually be in the present moment and then wisdom arises out of that. It's a big difference, right? Big difference. So wisdom arises, insight arises out of a deep intuition 
So knowing we sit here in the present moment and then suddenly we see how things really are. We see the truth of things. Often that insight can have a, a really big effect on our, our life depending how big the insight is. So when we say insight in, to the practice, insight meditation, what we're talking about is seeing the truth of impermanence how everything's always changing. This is a big one. I want to talk about this one a lot tonight. We see the truth of stress and suffering. We start to see how we can end our own suffering, and we start to see how we create it. We start to see where we ourselves are putting the roots in the ground. What seeds are we planting? Right? We start to see how there's a cause and effect relationship. And we start to change that. So we begin to understand how stress, suffering, all this is produced. We start to get really wise about that. And then we see how the biggest piece of all is this idea of the ego. A sense of self, a sense of someone. All this belongs to someone. There's a deep-rooted belief in that. We start to see the truth of selflessness, which then leads to a deep sense of interconnectedness. Right? So we stop feeling lonely. We come home to ourselves in a different way. So these are the insights that we actually see. These are the liberating insights that we see. And we can have different uh, levels of insight into this different times at different places. Mostly when people are in deep practice, they come on retreat and are sharing with the teacher. What makes us really excited is when you have insight into one of these three aspects. Right? You see how you're suffering, how you're, how you're contributing, or you're creating, and you start to see how you can, ah, you're waking up. You see how this leads to this. We see that, oh my gosh, really, I saw a moment where I wasn't here, where it was just happening. Right? insight into selflessness. Then we say, ah, somebody comes in and they say, I see how everything's changing. I can't hold on to anything. Right? It's like, yes, impermanence. Because all of those insights leads to one thing, letting go. If we were to sum up the whole practice, if I could put a big sign somewhere on Spirit Rockland, it would say, let go. (laughs) Right? Let go. But how do we let go? Not so easy. So I was reflecting a little bit on the Buddha's death. And as I was looking in the text, there's a, a sutta called the Parinibbana Sutta. Basically, it's the last three months of the Buddha's life. And he predicted that he was going to die and started telling people, in three months' time, I will pass. But still, people had a hard time believing that. It's like, no, you're permanent, right? (laughs) And uh, so I was on pilgrimage in India a few years ago. And so I went to all the holy sites. I spent a long time there. And I went to Kushnagar, where the Buddha died. And um, they had this beautiful stupa there. And it's a huge gold Buddha lying down as they say that he lied down on his side and put his head down and then went into meditation 
and went into levels of uh, samadhi and then slowly passed away. And they say there was thousands of people watching, not only his uh, monks and nuns and attendants, but also celestial beings were there. So here's a little bit of what he um, said in the sutta, what thus we have heard. He's talking to Ananda. Ananda was his cousin and his attendant for about 25 to 30 years of his life, somewhere in there. And the Buddha died somewhere around 80 years, give or take. Uh, So he had taught from 35 years old to 80 years, nonstop, all over India, northern India, and parts of what's now Nepal. So here he is, and he's talking to Ananda, his cousin. And the stories of the suttas of Ananda are very beautiful. Ananda was a very beloved monk and uh, beautiful heart. He says, Now I am frail, Ananda, old age, far gone in years. This is my 80th year, and my life is spent. Even as an old cart, Ananda, is held together with much difficulty, so the body of the Tathagata, that's how he referred to himself, so the body of the Tathagata is kept going only with supports. It is, Ananda, only when the Tathagata, disregarding external objects with sensation of certain feelings, attains to and abides in the silence concentration, the signless concentration of mind, that his body is more comfortable. So what he's saying is only when I'm in high states of concentration is my body comfortable, right? And I have to like disregard this frame because when I'm present in it, it's suffering. So as he was getting ready to pass away, Ananda ran off and started crying, his cousin, because he just couldn't accept that this was, that he was dying. Uh, this was very hard. And the reason I wanted to share this sutta with you is because the Buddha's very last words were about a teaching on impermanence. Like the final thing that he said was, Now, monks, I declare to you, all things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. So strive on. So those are his final words. And then as he began to lie down, and then here's another part that I think is, is kind of touching, because we might think that the Buddha wasn't like a human being or didn't have like some real tenderness. Ananda had ran off and was crying, and as the Buddha was lying there getting ready to enter into um, the process of dying, he asked where he was, and then some of the other attendants said, oh, Ananda ran over there, he's crying in the corner. So uh, the Buddha said, go get Ananda, please bring him over here. And then... The Blessed One spoke to Venerable Ananda, saying, Enough, Ananda. Do not grieve. Do not lament. For have I not taught from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance of that which is born has come into being, compounded and subject to decay? How can one say... May it not come to dissolution. There can be no such state of things. Now for a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata with loving kindness and deed, words, thoughts, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart, 
beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda. Now you should put forth energy, and soon you too will be free from the taint. So as he was talking to him, he was saying, I've been explaining to you all along, everything, everything is born passes. Everything that comes together disperses. If you think about this moment, here we are, we gathered for this retreat, and then in a couple of days, everyone says bye. Even this experience is impermanent, right? Everything in life comes together and then passes again. We have a very hard time with this truth. This one is bittersweet, right? It just gets us in the heart. It's like, what? <laughs> right? We hold on. We're clingers, right? It's like, no, we want, you know, we grip on to what is passing, right? Have you ever had a relationship that was ending and held on to it? It's brutal, right? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's dying. You've got to let it go, but it's like peeled out of our hands, like, ugh. Yeah, this is how we are with a lot of things, right? This is how we are. This is not seeing the nature of reality, not seeing it clearly, not understanding that everything is changing, not seeing that everything is in a constant flow, a constant dance. Things come together and dissolve. Things come together and dissolve. Relationships come together, you dance for a while, you learn, and then suddenly it's back out again, right? You're back on the dance floor by yourself, and then come together again, and then out again, and things have their own rhythm, right? But deep down in our culture, we are taught that things are permanent. If you can just get it right, just get that perfect moment, and then hang on, it stays like that for the, you know, until the end, Right, or that perfect house, or that perfect person, or that perfect job. Like we're always looking for a certain amount of stability. So painful, because what happens is when it all crumbles, we feel destitute. Right, we feel like life has really done a number on us. Like it's cruel. I want to read you um, this poem I love called "The Keeney Speaks." This is by Jennifer Wellwood. The Dakini is an, a, a form of an enlightened, the enlightened feminine. So this is kind of like a female Buddha talking to you. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel. But she's only wild, and her compassion is exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. 
Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. (laughs) So we think, no hope. What do you mean no hope, right? (laughs) The dance of no hope means give up holding on, you know, the clinging. The dance of no hope is let's just let go together, you know? And it doesn't mean that we let go of responsibility. There's a way in which these teachings can be confusing because some people say, how do I let go? What am I supposed to be? Some hippie out walking around? Not, you know, we see that where someone says, let's let go. And then you ask them something like, well, everything is everything, you know. <laughs> you know, why bother? The polar bears, well, what can we do? It's just happening, you know. And there's an apathy, you know, like a kind of checked outness. And we're not so attracted to that, because I used to see that. I kind of played with that a little. I was like, no, this isn't the letting go that uh, has real wisdom, right? Forgetting to pay your bills, just kind of not caring, going, well, it's all concepts. Credit card companies are all, you know, we can get into that. There's certain people who see a bit of emptiness and then go there with it. Right? But there's still karma, you know? <laughs> and uh, that's the wisdom part with letting go. It's like, how do I let go and then fully show up in my life without holding on, without clinging, understanding that everything's impermanent? How do I love with my whole heart, but yet understand if this should change, this is the nature of reality to do so? Right? Change happens. Even if someone's married their whole life, death parts them. Right? Change will happen at some point. Right? So this, this place of recognizing, even as you're sitting on this cushion, your day-to-day, how many emotions have you had? I mean, we wake up, we're happy, then we're <laughs> bored, then we're sad, then we're mad, right? We go frustrated, then we go off, and we're like blissing out again. Right, and then, and then the whole roller coaster all day long, change, 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 one mind state after another. Have you seen this yet? There's some part in which I remember being on retreat and getting tired of all the changing mind states. And I remember I was on a three-month course. I went into my teacher, Joseph, and I just sat down and said, I'm tired. He's like, mm, what are you tired of? It's all changing. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's going to last, and then it's gone. You know, one moment I'm happy, you know, and I think this is it, this is it, right? This is the holding on, I feel bliss. I finally arrived, no more pain, just bliss, here it is. You know, you convince yourself every mind state is permanent. This is why we suffer. Sorrow isn't that bad if you think, well, it maybe only lasts an hour, right? You could bear it, but what happens is your mind says, this is a permanent state, you feel sadness and you imagine five years in bed with Oreos, never leaving, <laughs> right? And you think, well, I'm not going to feel that. That's how it is, you know. But we don't remember it's go- it goes like this, right? It's all different. Where is your sadness now? Where is your rage now, right? Somewhere, they're visitors, right? They come and go 
their own causes and conditions, thoughts coming and going all the time, everything shifting moment after moment. When you look really clearly, there's nothing to hold on to because everything is changing so quickly. Right? Everything is changing so quickly. But we don't see that in our everyday life. It seems like everything is the same until you really examine it. I can remember being on a retreat with some a teacher, Saida Upandita. He's a Burmese teacher. He's quite fearsome. Even the name gives me a little chill, Saida Upandita. He was uh, expected a lot out of you. You had to be mindful 24 hours a day. And I heard he had psychic power, so I was on this month-and-a-half course on the East Coast, so I didn't want to slack off in my room because everyone was like, he knows. <laughs> <laughs> he knows how long you sleep. <laughs> One of the staff members said he had asked her immediately about her sleeping habits because she had overslept, and, and everyone said that, so I, I didn't even, in my room. You know, now, now we go in our room and we shut the door like, woohoo, don't have to be mindful. Right? We kind of goof around in there a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> right? And then the minute we walk out, we go. <laughs> it's good for now. So I didn't even goof off in my room because I was convinced that he would know. So what happened was my mind got into such a state of concentration. And I started seeing how quick things were changing. And I remember it was like lightning speed, boom, 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 happy, sad, bored, this, this sensation. I remember kept trying to keep track of it, and it started speeding up and speeding up, and things were dissolving quicker and quicker and quicker. And I remember I went to report this to him, and he was like, mm-hmm, now you're seeing, keep looking. And I started to see deeper and deeper and deeper. Everything was shifting, changing. It was just energy and plays of light and sound and vibration and this happening and that happening. And something in me really shifted after that. I was like, wow. Change is happening. It was, I just related to it differently. That was the beginning of an insight. Insight, sometimes you have small insight. It's almost like you're going to chop down a huge tree I've never chopped down a tree, but if you were going to try one of those big redwoods, you would, and you were doing it with a small axe, you would have to chop in the same place many times. And insight works like that, right? You chop away and chop away and chop away, and you have insight into it. And then it's like, okay, okay. And then one day there's the big one, takes down the whole thing, or pulls out the whole root, you could say. So you're digging and digging, using that analogy. So it's important that we start to see that, that, that this, this impermanent nature, we start to understand how when we're not in alignment with that, we suffer. And then this other aspect of seeing, this other insight into seeing the truth of stress or suffering. Now, I used to really be upset with the Dharma when I was younger because it seemed like everybody just obsessed on suffering. Right, I would go long retreats. I can remember getting mad one time. I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. But clearly I was a mess, you know, all suffering. And I think my teachers would laugh so hard. You know, I would have I was very expressive. I'll just say that. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a way in which we have to be willing to endure. You know, it's like we've, Buddha used to say, who can untangle the great tangle? 
And what he means is the tangle of the mind. It's like we've gotten so tangled up, we can't figure out where, what's happening, what's going. Can you feel that tangle sometimes when you sit here? A lot of times we're unweaving tangles. Like, okay, that person said that, and then I said this. Okay, okay let me just feel that, and we like let go of a big piece. You notice that? And it's like, and then suddenly out of the emptiness, another tangle comes, right? It's a little tangled up. And then we have to kind of take that one apart and what's going on and look at it from different angles. And then we dissolve that one. And then another one comes up. You know, this is kind of, in some way, the process. But this path, I think, is a real warrior path because if you can't face difficulties in your mind, If you can't be with what's difficult, you will have a hard time because this is a path of purification, right? It's like you tell the universe in a moment of, I think it's grace and insanity, you say, may I be liberated fully in everything but love, you know, may that go out, right? We say these declarations, right? I want to be an enlightened being, right? It's like, okay, wow, be careful what you asked for. Because everything that is not of that comes out. How else is it going to heal? Like, this is what happens. Right? This is a good thing. We have to get over on our path thinking that when we encounter difficulty, something's gone wrong. And look at it as, wow, this is interesting. Let me purify this. Let's work with this. Instead of turning away from the ghost, we turn toward it. It's It's a different mindset. Right? We have to be willing to meet the suffering in our own mind to heal it. We start to become the doctors. Like, oh, what's happening? Oh, sorrow. Okay, can I be with sorrow? Oh, what's happening now? Loneliness. Okay, can I be with loneliness? Right? It's not always going to be pleasant on the journey. Right? We're sort of moving through these layers, these layers. So last year, I had a good lesson in this last year. Last year, I went on a five-month meditation retreat. Um, January, no, I went February through July. And I had planned on spending all five months at this one little center in the mountains in Crestone, Colorado. It was a little tiny Tibetan center. And I only had rooms for eight yogis. And so I, I was like, okay, this will be great. I'll go there. I had actually never been there. It was a beautiful center. I'd heard about it. So I went there. I spent two months there, but then it started to get really noisy. Uh, the, there was a teacher there from Bhutan, and he always wanted to practice his English with me. And so he would see me every chance he got, and he would want to have these like kind of crazy conversations. And, and, and I, so I started hiding at the mealtimes, and like, oh, and they would go on and on, and I'd be bowing, and like, and I'd be like, I can't keep talking to him all the time, you know, I'm trying to. And then these other visitors would come in and drink tea in the afternoon. There were the, these Bhutanese families that lived in Colorado, and they'd be talking to him because he was very chatty. And I just said, no, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go from this center. And I heard about these yogi cabins in the mountains. So I was like, that's it. I'll be like a yogini alone in a cabin in the, way up in the woods. So I went to go look at this cabin. And I was like, this is it. Let, I wanna, I, I'm going to move here for three months. I'm going to stay in this cabin. Now, I didn't grow up very nature-y. I grew up on concrete jumping on patios, that kind of thing, you know, in apartment buildings. 
I always long to be really naturey and at one with, you know, Gaia and the earth and all like that. <laughs> so this was my fantasy that I would be this way. So I go, they drop me off at the cabin. They only had, there was no electricity in the cabin. They had uh, one solar panel, so I had a little bit of power in a little um, refrigerator. So I had some food in the refrigerator. There was an outhouse, and I was completely remote. The nearest, there was a, it was on the land of this Zochin community. And they had a little temple where sometimes somebody was there, but mostly nobody was. And I didn't have a cell phone because I would have gotten no service. And I was determined to do this in an old-fashioned way. Like, if I die, I die. You know, I was having these really <laughs> grandiose ideas, <laughs> right? I was just like, okay, I'm facing all my fears. That's it. I'm tired of running from myself. Whatever's going to happen, it's just going to be a feeling. And I'll just, I guess, die of feelings. I don't know. I was willing. <laughs> I was willing to do that. And so the caretaker would bring up water and food every about nine days. I had ordered some food from this market. He would pick it up, and he would have to drive up this treacherous hill. I mean, it was crazy. No one should have been driving on that road. But he would somehow haul up the water and then put it by this tree, and then I would go haul it up to my cabin. So I only saw somebody about every 10, 11 days. And um, I remember... I was very confident until the caretaker had dropped me off and then he was driving down the hill and I remember at that moment I was like, no! <laughs> like, wait a minute! You know, and, and then I kid you not, from that moment on I descended into the most painful, torturous mind states I ever experienced in my life. I mean... Loneliness, like I had never, I couldn't fathom that kind of loneliness. I could just be sitting there, one mind state after another. And this grief, I think it was some ancestral grief from way back. It was just coming and coming, and it was oceans of tears. And oh, and I would just be sitting and thinking, my goodness, it's oceans and oceans of tears. And then at night, I was terrified all night because it sounded like wild animals were everywhere. And so I would hide all the curtains. I would shut everything. And then I would just hear, and I was completely alone. And I was convinced these rednecks were going to come kill me at any second. This terror was there. So all day, it was loneliness, grief, sorrow, and all night, just terror. I would just be, and I was just, it was going on for days and days. And I would think, this is, such suffering. So I started to have a lot of compassion. I mean, I, I had to. And I thought, well, okay, this can't last that long. Three months. I did this for three months. It was like the daily. The, the fear started to dissipate a little, but not that much. You know, it was some primal I feel like I dislodged some primal thing about being afraid of being on the earth and being alone and embodiment. And I feel that I purged out some grief that was ancestral because I would cry and cry and cry and then at some point it would turn into gospel hymns. You know, and I feel like I was channeling the ancestors and I, I feel like I let go of something really oppressive. And 
I remember leaving my retreat and just bowing to the cabin. <laughs> like, wow, that was hard. <laughs> that was one for the books, you know, and just being like, oh, you know, and I remember I would think about when I was alone in there, and I, I would think about all the yogis and cabins all over the world and all the people that were facing themselves. And I thought about the Buddha a lot and how he sat under the Bodhi tree and how all that he went through, and I knew it was a lot, how he almost died because he was trying so hard to awaken. You know, and I, I thought he must have burned through oceans of tears. I mean, he was just going, right? And he was just sitting. And also there was this fascination with how bad could it get. Because the only thing that was happening were feelings. And I can remember sitting there feeling horrendous feelings and being like, is this the worst feeling I've ever had? Could this be the worst feeling on the planet? Just despair with terror mixed in with, long, you know, and I remember. So there was real mindfulness because I could describe it to myself, right? And thought, well, can I be with this? What well, is this? This is bad. Yeah, I can be here. You know, another moment. Just breathe. Just breathe. And I was sort of walking myself through these feelings because I was thinking, it's not, it's real, but it is temporary. I would remember it wouldn't last forever. So we have to be willing. There's a certain amount of suffering we encounter on the way to the end of suffering, right? That we are willing to burn through our delusion our karma, our knots, we have to take the time to unravel them. And there's real insight in doing that. Deep compassion was awakened in me from that. I had so much compassion for the confusion in our minds, and and then I had periods of a lot of rage, you know, just primal rage. I remember my whole body would be shaking. And I'd start screaming. It would just start coming out. And I would think, wow, this is the rage that creates war, right? Somebody who wasn't mindful, they would act on this, right? And harm all kinds of people around them, create havoc, you know? And it was so good I could just be with that and tend to that. So this is that we have to understand that we have insight into our own suffering and also that we can liberate it, right? We don't have to be that scared of it. We don't have to be scared of the dark. There was a freedom I felt after that, too. I felt strong after that. Now I feel like, oh, my God, what's, what could happen now that I would be that terrified of? Because there's somewhere in me that's kind of like, well, I went through that. You know, what is this, some fear for a few minutes? Well, let's just be, you know, there's some steadiness that came from that, like an unwaverable part of me that can get really close to madness without being afraid. Because I know it's going to change. Like, it won't stay like this forever. Let's just go there. All right. You know, and it helps me work with my clients that I work with. It helps me work with the youth. When I'm on retreats, I take, we go on these routine retreats. And at some point, they all start melting down. I think it's around day four. Right? And they're all crying. And, you know, sometimes I'll have these wet spots on my shirt, you know, (laughs) from just like, okay, we're here. Let's just do it. (laughs) Like, it's fine. I don't have to shut it down. You're just open to that, right? This is the path of healing, real healing. This was, I pulled out a big root on that retreat. I did. I felt it. I felt different. I walked differently after that. 
So sometimes we have to do that. And then with that is the third, and just say a couple more things before I end, is the third insight becomes this more of this insight into egolessness. Self, this idea, this concept of me, 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 me. You'll notice that most of your problems start on this retreat with this thought that goes, I fill in the blank. <laughs> All the suffering starts right after that. <laughs> this thought, me, I, it comes out of nothing. You'll be having a pleasant moment. Oh, look at the bird. And then I, me, my, I. And then right after that, the tears, the anger, the fear, the discontent. All of that comes after that. All of that comes after that. But what does that really mean for our life? When, you know, it kind of is a strange concept. I remember when I first heard the teachings of no self, I was totally turned upside down. I could get everything the Buddha said until that moment. I was like, yes, I'm with you, yes, what? No self, no, what does this mean? You know, what, what is it like to have an insight into selflessness? I think it's to begin to let go of our stories about ourselves that we hold so dear. It's like the tree, you know, we take an ax and we start cutting at our own stories our own concepts about who we are, what we are, what we're capable of. You know, we're such a prison of that all the time, right? Who would you be without your story, right? Can you just imagine that for a moment without your, you know, the Buddha, if you think about it, when people would meet the Buddha out walking and they'd ask him questions. There's a story where somebody ran into the Buddha and he was all radiant, you know, and they said, are you, are you a god? Or, you know, they entered into this dialogue. But the Buddha didn't start off by going, well, it all started when I was in the palace, you see. I had all this money, but I was really unhappy about it. So I ran away, and that's this whole enlightenment thing. Now I'm teaching, but I mean, it didn't, like, <laughs> that's not what happened. He would just say, I'm awake. <laughs> you know, like our stories that we tell again and again and again, the liberation happens, we start chopping them. <laughs> like our telenovelas, our dramas that play all day long, moment, it's like that narrative voice that kicks on every morning. It's like, me, 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 I, 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 me, me, I, I, I. How do I look? How am I? How is everyone noticing me, 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 me? Everything we, is a, through a filter of me. And that filter is habitual and it's so painful. I remember being on one retreat where I got so bored with any thoughts of I. I just, I'm bored with it now. And thoughts go like, spring, who, spring, spring. I just get bored with them. You know, they're just not interesting anymore. <laughs> we lose that. That insight starts cutting that habit. It's a habit of mind. It's a belief. You know, that we're the most important. That we're the star of this entire show. Right? And everything here is about me, right? That's, we sort of lose that reference point and we become more one with nature, right? Instead of being an I and a me, we become a system that is a part of, right? The problem with having a self is that you often are separate, right? It's like we've pulled away from the beauty of nature and then we've, we're looking around and then we're isolated,
I want to read you this um, last teaching. It's from Ajahn Sumedho, who's kind of like the grandfather of Spirit Rock a little bit. He's been a monk his whole life, really wise. He is the abbot. I think he's, no, he might have stepped down as the abbot. He's a wonderful teacher. He's in his, I think, late 70s now. Um, but here's what he, he wrote. And this is kind of what, uh, this is just a good teaching. He writes, when I was young, he's talking about giving Dharma talks. He says, when I was young, I was very self-conscious to say something in public. It was absolutely terrifying. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice and say, aye, aye, sir, in public in a roll call would have had me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight- and nine-year-old Chinese children in North Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks in Thai to Thai people, all of this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you'd get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody would say, you really good, give good dharma, Samato. Then sometimes I would give a really stupid talk and think, I don't ever want to give another talk again. I didn't become a monk to give talks anyway. But the idea was to keep watching this. Lung Por Cha, Ajahn Cha would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I would feel. And fortunately in Thailand, the people are such that they are just grateful for a monk giving a talk, even if it's not a very good talk. It doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it easy. One time at a katina ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah is a great Thai forest master, he said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up until that time, I'd only talk for half an hour. This was a strain, three hours? And he knew. When I, with Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on a high seat and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. (laughs) At the end of the three talks, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting up there. (laughs) That wasn't Ajahn Chah saying, Okay, Samoedo, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff. Entertain them, suck it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the laziness, the not wanting to be bothered, the desperation of wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the most wanting to get approval. All these have come up during these talks in the past 15 years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. So I like that teaching just because I just think it's easy to relate to. So this way in which we start to chop away at our self-concepts, our self-view is really important. It's a really key insight, right? The less of you there is, the more beauty. And it's not the you that is, 
Like, you know, in some way it's not, it's getting it separate with having a good self-esteem. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the egoic things of pride, greed, conceit, self-obsession, not the beautiful aspects for what we're doing here, right? We're looking less, less of us and more connection, you know? The moments that you're here on retreat, think about your most beautiful moments. They're usually when there's not a lot of self-talk, right? And maybe you're just sitting in the moment and there's just a breath, there's a breeze. Maybe you're looking at a turkey, <laughs> right? And it's just isness happening, right? The minute we start being like, wow, that's a cute turkey. Maybe I should buy a turkey. Maybe I should stop eating turkey. I don't know. Then it's like we ruin it, right? Then they become, but when we're just there and it's the moment, no self, no problem, it's just peace and presence. That's what we're looking for more of those moments. That is what heals us. That is beautiful, you know, in so many ways. So I just, um, again, wanted to just uh, encourage everyone. They said the development of wisdom is to understand that everything is impermanent. And when things come to their natural end, let go. We're all letting go together. And then to understand that suffering, having insight into suffering, how, we, how it's created, how we can be with it, everything about suffering becomes a teaching. Instead of running from it, we look at, what can I learn? Like, what are you showing me? Life is school. I love to teach like that, the school of life. We are here in in session, right? This is class. And those who are paying attention, they learn. (laughs) You know, when we're awake and we're going, okay, I'm ready. Chapter, you know, five million. We've been doing this for a long time, you know. So... We learn. We learn about no self. Ajahn Shah, just to end with, he said, no self, no problem. <laughs> Keep that in your, in your mind. As things get all twisted up, you can remember, what's going on here? Is this some kind of view? And then let go. Come back to the stillness that's all around us. So thank you all for listening uh, and your attention and your practice deep bows for all that we do here together. I'm going to just sit for a moment.
Thank you. And if the bell ringer could maybe ring the bell about 15 minutes later, so we can still have a half an hour of walking right now, and then we'll come in at 9, and then we'll chant and sit. Okay? Thank you. Have a beautiful walking, and look at the stars. They're really shiny tonight.